So we're going to start off this morning with a little bit of a survey. Uh, for those of you who still drive cars that are propelled by gasoline or diesel, still, right? Um, a show of hands, how many of you um, keep the tank filled up, that you won't let the tank get below three quarters, you keep it full? You're, you're a top-off kind of people. We got some top-off kind of people. That's okay. Good. All right. Don't be ashamed. It's good. That's, that's like proactiveness. Um, how many of you are half-tank kind of people? Gets below a half tank, then you go to the gas station, but not before. Half tank? Hardly anybody. Okay. Uh, quarter tank. Quarter tank, you head to the gas station. Okay. Uh, how many of you are gaslight people? <clears throat> gaslight comes on, that's when you go. Okay. All right. How many of you um, have a, a car with a computer on it, or you just know your car so well that you know when the gaslight comes on, how many more miles you have left, and you just keep going? So I'm uh, somebody who, I used to be a quarter tank kind of person. I married a gaslight uh, fume kind of person. And uh, not for 19 years, it's been one of those things. I get into the car uh, that she's been driving and, uh, and, and the gaslight is on and I give her that look and then she gives me the look right back and she's like, you know we can keep, keep going. You know, you know we can. Um, how many of you, maybe uh, you share a car uh, with a spouse or a roommate or something like that with somebody, you maybe are a quarter tank or more and they're, they're a gaslight person. Maybe, okay. Um, how many of you, um, uh, you never fill up? When you go to the gas station, it's usually you're almost empty. You go to the gas station and you're like, I'm gonna put five bucks in, or I'm gonna put 10 bucks in. Maybe if I'm splurging, I'm gonna put 20 bucks in. How many of you never fill up the tank? Anybody? Usually this is the way I rolled as a kid, right? Because I never had money to fill up a tank. Um, and so how many of you have ever run out of gas? You ever do the, the walk of shame? You know, like if you got your car over to the side of the road and you had to humbly walk to the gas station, hopefully they'll let you borrow a gas can, right? Most of the time they're like, well, you gotta buy one, right? Um, how many of you have coasted into a gas station on fumes? I think the word for that is desperation. Desperation. You know, the reality is, is that uh, I think a lot of us uh, do a better job at filling up our gas tanks than we fill up our spiritual tanks. Henry David Thoreau, like 200 years ago, uh, he, he said this, that the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. He looked around at the culture he was living in, and 200 years ago, he said, people are living lives of quiet desperation. How much more so now? Right? In the fast-paced world in which we live, and the culture is so, so driven, how much more so now are, are people running around leading lives of quiet desperation, lives of, of, of living on empty, running on, on fumes. Now, um, Henry David Thoreau, he would have had uh, a different explanation as to the why. Right? He, he, he didn't follow Jesus, he was not a Christian. He would have a different explanation as to why people are leading lives of, of quiet desperation. Um, it, for us as, as Christians, if, if you would identify yourself as a Christian, our answer for that is sin. That we lived in a, in a, in a world that's that's drowning in sin. Sin weighs us down, it drags us down, it depletes us, it empties us, ultimately destroys us in some ways. Uh, it's sin. And so we know that the cure for that, the answer for that is Jesus. That the Son of God comes and he, 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 he takes on flesh and he lives a sinless life. We're gonna talk about this morning how he was tempted just as, as human beings are tempted to sin. He, he was tempted but without sin. He lived a sinless life and he took that sinless life and offered it as a sacrifice to God. That he absorbs the wrath of God towards our sin. He assuages it. He takes it away. He propitiates it. He removes it. 
so that we can have a right relationship with God again, so we can connect to him again. So how is it that even as among those of you who would call yourself Christians, even though many of us, we, would, we know that one, the punishment of sin is removed for us because of the cross. Two, uh, we've been given power over sin because of the sending of the Holy Spirit to live in us. We've been given power over sin, and yet still many of us are leaving lives of quiet desperation. Why? Don't we have a, a different source, a different strength? Don't we have a, a, a deeper place from which to draw power to live from? Why are we leading lives of quiet desperation? Remember, the world is, is looking at, at Christianity, at this faith, and they're not just asking, is it true? They're asking, is it work? Does it work? So uh, this morning, we're gonna begin a conversation on spiritual disciplines. We're gonna look at a spiritual discipline this morning, and then sporadically over the next year, we're gonna look at, at more. Um, but the, the spiritual discipline we're gonna look at this morning is called silence and solitude. All right, now, um, people don't like the word discipline. Right, um, in, in our culture especially, we like the word self-indulgence. Uh, we don't like the word discipline. Uh, discipline means saying no to stuff, right? And we don't live in a culture that says, hey, you should say no to stuff. We live in a culture that says, you should say yes to everything you possibly can, right? So uh, discipline is actually a good thing. If, uh, if you need to stay physically healthy, you know you can't eat a meal like you did on thir- Thursday, right? You can't go through life eating like you did on Thanksgiving Day. You can't do that. You can't belly up the table and eat like that. Like, to some respect, you gotta say no. There's things you have to say no to at the table if you're gonna be physically healthy. If, if you are going to be physically healthy in terms of sports, then you have to get out of bed and you have to get on the treadmill or you have to hit the gym or whatever it takes. You have to say no to other things in order to do something that's sometimes painful and sweaty and hard in order to stay physically in shape. Right? So discipline is not a bad thing. And just as we need discipline physically, we need discipline spiritually. And when we talk about disciplines and we're asking the questions, what is a spiritual discipline? We're not looking to Muhammad. We're not looking to Gandhi. We're not looking to Buddha. We're not looking to uh, monks, right? Or the Desert Fathers. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus. What enabled Jesus to live a life of power, right? Like, what enabled Jesus to live the kind of life that he lived? What enabled Jesus to to do the kinds of things that he did? Can you look at the life of Jesus and see that there are certain practices that he engaged in on a regular basis that enabled him to do those sorts of things? So we're gonna look um, this morning at silence and solitude in the life of Jesus. We're gonna look at four instances of that that he demonstrates for us. Um, But the place I wanna start this morning is where he begins ministry. Matthew 3, beginning in verse 13 through 17, the very place that Jesus begins ministry. He's lived for 30 years, he's he's grown up son of of Mary, adopted son of Joseph, blue collar sort of worker, guy works with his hands, but at a certain age, it's time to begin doing what God has sent him to do. And he begins this ministry by being baptized. Look with me, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to John, to be baptized by him, John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So, 
uh, Jesus comes to John, and John was, he was baptizing people, which means um, he was symbolically taking them, pushing them underwater, bringing back up to symbolically show a desire to be cleansed of sins. It was a baptism of repentance, meaning a person acknowledges there's something wrong between me and God. I rebelled against him. I rejected him. There's, there's things in my life that I choose that are against him, and, and because of that, I am a sinner, and I desire to have a relationship with the one that made me. And out of that desire to, to have that relationship, I choose to go through this, this symbolic ritual of baptism. So Jesus comes to John, and John says, no, 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 no. You're the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the earth, the world. Like, you're not a sinner, right? You're sinless. How, how could I baptize you? you? You need to baptize me. And Jesus, he essentially says, well, we're, we're gonna do this to fulfill all righteousness. In other words, we're gonna do this to set the example. See, we need to understand when it comes to, to Jesus and how he lived, his life wasn't just a list of commands of do's and don'ts. He didn't go around preaching, do this, don't do that, and, and give us a list of rules to follow. Instead, Jesus gives us an example to follow. Jesus gives us a pattern to follow. He, he lives a life to emulate, and that begins with baptism. He's baptized. Now, when he's baptized, he comes out of the water, and we see one of the clearest pictures of the Trinity in all of Scripture, where here's the Son of God, and the Spirit of God descends on him, and then the, the, the voice of the Father, God, speaks. And God the Father says of his Son, he's my Son, and I'm well pleased. In other words, I'm approving of him. Right? The Son of God has the approval of God before he does anything. I want you to notice that. Jesus hasn't turned water into wine. He hasn't cleansed any lepers. He hasn't cast out any demons. He hasn't multiplied any kids' lunches into feed you know, thousands of people. He hasn't raised anybody from the dead. He hasn't gone to the cross. Jesus hasn't done anything at this point. And yet God the Father is saying of him, I am well pleased of him. He already has the approval of God before he ever does anything. Before he ever does anything. Henry Nouwen, in a short little book called uh, Out of Solitude, he points this out. It is not difficult to see that in our particular world, we all have a strong desire to accomplish something. Some of us think in terms of great dramatic changes in the structure of our society. Others want at least to build a house, write a book, invent a machine, or win a trophy. And some of us seem to be content when we just do something worthwhile for someone. But practically, all of us think about ourselves in terms of our contribution to life. And when we become old, much of our feelings of happiness or sadness depend on our evaluation of the part we played and giving shape to our world and its history. He's talking about where we find approval, and it's through the doing of things, the building of things, the creating of things, the accomplishing of things, the winning of things. Approval comes from doing is what we're taught from a very early age. He goes on and he says this, although our desire to be useful can be a sign of mental and spiritual health in our goal-oriented society, it can also be a paralyzing lack of self-esteem. More often than not, we not only desire to do meaningful things, but we often make the result of our work the criteria of our self-esteem. And then, we not only have successes, we become our successes. When we start being too impressed by the results of our work, we slowly come to the erroneous conviction that life is one large scoreboard where someone is listing the points to measure our worth. And before we are fully aware of it, we have sold our soul to the many grade givers. Let me ask you, do you see your life as a scoreboard? 
Are you winning in life? Looking at your accomplishments and the things that you've done and their successes, are you winning or are you losing? Are you gaining the approval that you seek? We look at Jesus and Jesus before he did anything was approved of by the Father. And from that place of approval, then he went and did. His actions came out of the approval that already was there. Paul says uh, to, the, to the church in Ephesus, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. And here's what Paul is is saying. He's saying, God chose you. You are blessed in the beloved. This is a powerful truth if you can stand on it. That you, if you are in Christ, you have already received the approval of the Father. You are already adopted, chosen sons and daughters of God. You don't have to go out and try to win his approval. You already have it. That needs to be the foundation as we move forward. One of the things about spiritual disciplines is uh, it's supposed to make us more like Jesus, not more like Pharisees. In other words, it's supposed to help us become more humble, not prideful and arrogant. Okay? Keep that in mind as we walk through all of this. So there are four instances we're gonna look at this morning where Jesus, um, he got away for silence and solitude. In fact, uh, there's lots more interest, uh, uh, instances of, of that. When you read the Gospels, you see it was actually a habit for Jesus to get away regularly for silence and solitude. It was a regular thing for him, but we're just gonna look at four this morning, and the first one begins immediately after the baptism. Immediately after the baptism, Jesus is led into the desert, into the wilderness, uh, by the Holy Spirit for 40 days. And in that 40 days, he fasts. He doesn't eat, he doesn't drink. He denies himself. Basic human needs, right? And then he does this to do battle with the devil. Uh, Pick it up, verse one, chapter four of Matthew, verse one, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry and the tempter came. Jesus led into the Spirit, uh, fasting, not eating, uh, not drinking, um, but what was he doing? 40 days, silence, solitude, alone with his heavenly Father, okay? Um, Solitude is not isolation. Solitude is alone with the Father. That's what he's doing. 40 days alone with the Father, preparing for what's about to take place here. When we need to understand, when you read this passage, we we tend to think that, that Jesus was fighting from a place of physical weakness because he was fasting. Instead, he's fighting from a place of spiritual strength because he was with his Father, right? So verse three, the tempter comes, and the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The temptation is, is essentially this. Take care of your flesh. Meet your body's de- needs, right? You're hungry, you haven't, gone, you haven't had food in 40 days. Take care of your, 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 your needs. Um, we have fleshly desires, right? And he's speaking to the most basic of them, and he says, turn this rock into a loaf of bread. 
Now, essentially what the temptation is is, is is that Jesus would rely on his own strength and his power rather than relying on God's strength and power. That he wouldn't trust God to provide for him, that he would take matters into his own hands, that he would provide for himself. It's a fleshly temptation, and it's one we all experience. But Jesus' response to it is to quote scripture. And, and he, he does not give in to the temptation, and so the devil moves on. Verse five, then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So Satan takes Jesus, puts him on a really high part of the temple. Um, it may have been 200, 250 feet up in the air, depending on where he was. There would have been maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of people down below looking up, wondering what's going on. And Jesus says, throw yourself off. The idea being the angels will come along, swoop you up, prevent you from, 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 from hitting your foot against a stone. Right? Like, so think of like the Olympics and think of somebody on the high dive, but really, really high, and there's a panel of judges down below, and they all got scorecards, right? Let's see, let's see if he sticks to the landing. Like, this is, this is uh, the Satan's temptation here is of, of a worldly nature. Will you glorify yourself by showing off in front of the world? Will you do something that will win the acclaim and the appreciation of the people that, that makes them think that you're awesome? And again, Jesus says no. He responds with scripture. So it moves on. Verse eight, and again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to them, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. We just finished the Old Testament book of 2 Samuel. We talked about how that book points to our need for a better king. A better king. That king is Jesus. He becomes king of kings, lord of lords. But the path to, the, to becoming king of kings is that he's, he's incarnate, he leaves his throne, he takes on flesh, he lives a sinless life, but he goes to the cross, he suffers, he dies, then he rises, he ascends, and then he's made king of kings. But the path to that glory is a painful path. It goes through the cross. And here's what Satan is saying is, I provide you another way to become king of kings. I'm gonna provide you another path to becoming lord of lords for all the nations to bow down to you. And, it, and it's one that doesn't include pain and suffering. All you have to do is bow down to me. Worship me. See, within these three temp temptations, we see there's, there's fleshly desires that are addressed, there's worldly cultural desires that are addressed, and there's, there's a real enemy's opposition desires that are addressed. World of flesh and the devil, okay? Um, John Mark Comer in his book, Live No Lies, says this, our war against the three enemies of the soul is not a war of guns and bombs. It's not against other people at all. It's a war on lies. And the problem is less that we tell lies and more that we live them. We let false narratives about reality into our bodies and they wreak havoc in our souls. We're confronted with lies. The, the way that we're confronted with the lies, he goes on, he says, the devil's primary stratagem to drive the soul and society into ruin is deceptive ideas, that's from the devil. Deceptive ideas that play to disordered desires, sinful human hearts that want the wrong thing, disordered desires which are normalized in a sinful society. Culture constantly reinforcing it. That's who the real enemy is. And it's an enemy that we're called to address. We're called to confront, as Jesus did. So when it comes to how Jesus confronted and did battle against the devil, how did he do it? Well, he used scripture, right? Scripture was, was the weapon, but where did the power come from? 
40 days alone with the Father to do battle against the devil. Silence, solitude with his Father. Let me ask you, when it comes to the confrontation, when it comes to the lies that we're being taught, what is the strength you draw from to fight? What is the strength you draw from to fight? Well, another passage. Look with me at Luke chapter six. Uh, the mission of God, we've, we've seen in scripture, is, is all, always been about including people. God has, has pointed uh, through various times, various places, to people and said, I'm including you in what I'm doing in this redemptive plan of mine. It includes people, and so Jesus is no different. At one point, he points at 12 guys and says, I'm, I'm making you apostles. Okay, so um, he, he's called a bunch of people from fishing boats and from tax collecting booths to follow him, and so they're, 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 there's this group of disciples there, but, but in, in Luke chapter six, he's going to name them this, this official title of apostle. It means sent one. It means Jesus understands that he's living this life to, to go to this death, to, 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 to you know, be raised from the dead and to, uh, to ascend, like, this, there needs to be testimony about this. People need to see his life lived out. They need to see him die. They need to see him rise. They need to see him ascend. Like, there needs to be a testimony about this because this is what changes the world, his gospel, his good news. So I need 12 of these guys. How does he choose them? Does, does, does God sort of gather this whole group together around and say, I need your resumes? Like, I need to know on paper, like, what are your qualifications? Like, what have you done? What are, what are your accomplishments? Like, are you good at handling money? Um, are you good at forming teams? Are you, you know, what, what, you know what, there also needs to be, in a, you know, some affinity sort of stuff going on. He, what Jesus is about to do here is he's, he's forming a team that he's going to do life with for the next three years, right? It comes to choosing who are the people that you're going to be, that are going to be your traveling companions in life. What's your favorite sports team? You know, what are your hobbies? Like when we have downtime, what are we gonna be talking about? You know, like cho choosing people that are, you know, maybe gifted in certain areas or maybe, you know, uh, good musicians or maybe attractive looking or what, like the kinds of decisions, what were the kinds of decisions Jesus used in order to include people onto his team? What Jesus, what he does is he spends the night in prayer. He doesn't look at resumes. He spends the night in prayer with the Father and from there chooses who would be his traveling companions in life. One of them, we would look at and say, maybe that wasn't a good choice, Judas Iscariot. We betrayed him, but yet even he served God's purpose. It's a part of God's plan. So let me ask you, where does your discernment come from? When you look at, at your life, when you look at the decisions that you need to make, especially when it comes to your traveling companions through life. You know, as a kid, you don't, you don't get to choose who your family is. You don't get to choose any of that, but you reach a certain age where you begin to start choosing who your friends are, who, 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 who you're going to relate to, who you're going to talk to, who you're going to maybe confess sin with, who's your, your church community, who, who are the people you're going to confide in, who are the, who's the person that maybe you want to date, maybe you want to spend the rest of your life in. When we look at some of our, our deepest pains and, and hurts in the world, it's because when it comes to our traveling companions, we've chosen the wrong ones. A lot of pain. Why? What do we use for discernment and making choices like that? Next scene, Mark 1, 
32 through 39, Jesus is in a place called Capernaum. He's gone into the local synagogue. He's preached there. He's healed somebody there. He goes to uh, one of his, his, his uh, disciples' house, uh, Simon Peter, and his mother-in-law's sick. He heals her, and then all of a sudden, things get really, really busy. Uh, verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place. And there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him. And they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went through all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. <clears throat> all right, so in the Gospel of Mark, we, we see something happening there. It's, it's Jesus is moving continuously to place to place. Like there's this expediency that's happening. It's like he quickly did this, he quickly did that, and it's just full of movement, right? Jesus is constantly moving and constantly doing. And this is one of those scenes. And all of a sudden, Jesus is surrounded by a bunch of people who are needing help, and he's healing them, and he's casting out demons. He's incredibly busy. Then the day ends, what does he do? Is he going to catch some Z's? Is he going to get some sleep? No. He goes to a desolate place. He goes to a lonely place, a quiet place to be with his heavenly father. See, what was the source that, 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 that filled him back up? What was the source of his encouragement? See, what happens is, is the next day they find him, early in the morning, and Simon's like, hey, the crowd's here waiting for you. There's lots of work to be done, and, and it's good work, and we can stay right here and do it. Maybe Simon's thinking, it's close to my own home, hometown, like my comfort zone, like it, it works well. People are coming to us. Why go to them? And Jesus says, no, we're, we're moving. We're going. We're continuing to move. Like the, there's a mission here. There's a purpose here. There's a plan here, and it doesn't involve me staying here and building a monument to myself. It's a movement forward. Like where did the endurance come from? What Jesus squeezed into three years, the people that he made contact with, the people that he healed, and, and the people that he helped, like what he squeezed into three years, like how is that even possible? How did he have that kind of endurance to live that kind of life? Where did the endurance come from? Time alone with his father. Where does your endurance come from? When life gets tiring, Things get long, semesters get long, finals looming, time with family on the calendar coming up, right? Like all the things that are going on, like, like where does your endurance come from to walk through this and put one foot in front of the other to keep going? Well, last scene, Luke 22. Jesus has had just had his, his last meal with his disciples. He takes his disciples to a, a quiet garden called Gethsemane. <clears throat> and he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. In the final moments of Jesus' life, before he, he knows what's coming, 
he's going to choose to spend time alone with his father. He knows he's going to be arrested. He's going to be tried. He's going to be convicted, condemned, killed. He knows the pain that lies before him. And it's not just physical pain and and emotional pain. He's going to be betrayed by all of his friends, but his father is going to turn his back on him. As God the Father pours out his wrath on his son and Jesus willingly absorbs it, the father turns away. And there's for the first time a disconnect between father and son. The the tremendous amount of pain as Jesus looked into this cup, this, this metaphorical cup of suffering, he looked into it and he staggered for a moment and he says to his father, please take this away. Please let there be another way. Please change the outcome of this. Change how this story goes. Now the father, we don't see his words, but we do see he sends an angel to encourage Jesus, to remind him to be with him. And even as Jesus sweats great drops of blood out of agony, at some point he gets up and says, not my will, but yours be done. And he goes to the cross, willingly. Jesus looked at this cover of suffering and he found joy. Hebrews 12, two says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. That doesn't mean he was happy doesn't mean Jesus was like, this is going to be great. He wasn't happy. But see, joy is something when you, when you could see the outcome, when you know what's going to happen, when you know what it will accomplish, a joy that, that originated in time alone with his father that enabled to look suffering in the eye and go forward. When you face suffering, where do you draw joy from? Can you? draw joy. We experience suffering in life. And whether that's losing a job or it's a cancer diagnosis, the reality is is that following Jesus is choosing a path of suffering. He made that clear. He said to pick up crosses and follow him. Like there's a certain amount of suffering that comes with following Jesus. And if you're here this morning and and you don't have a relationship with Jesus, I want to make sure you know right off the bat. Like it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. There is suffering ahead. The question is, what will you draw from? What strength, what power will you draw from when you face that suffering? We look at the life of Jesus and we see Jesus went to the Father. Why don't we? Why don't we? Like, the reality is, is because of what Jesus did for us at the cross, the dividing wall between us and God comes down. We have access to him now. The same power that raised Christ from the dead, you have access to. Why don't we go after it? Why don't we spend that time with him? Why don't we get alone? Why don't we have have silence and solitude in our lives with the, the source of all the power we could possibly need? Why don't we? See, the thing is, there's the objective truth. And here's the objective truth. Um, you should spend time in silence and solitude with the Father. That's what you should do. That's the objective truth. You should spend time alone in silence and in solitude with the Father. It will give you strength and the power to live. That's the objective truth. And, And here's the why. Jesus did it. Jesus did it. Like, for you to step in and say, I don't think this spiritual discipline's for me. Like, I... I mean, when it comes to, uh, you know, the, the, the power to confront lies, 
You can't do it better than Jesus. Okay, when it comes to the power to, uh, to, 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 to face pain and suffering, you can't do it better than Jesus. Right? When it comes to discernment and big decisions in your life, you can't do it better than Jesus. When it comes to running the long race, you can't do it better than Jesus. He did this regularly. Like, that's why, that's why. But that's objective truth. How do you make it subjective? How do you, how do you make it real to you? See, here's, here's the difference. Objective truth is, is this. Say this is the first time I ever come here. I was invited to, to, to speak this morning, and um, I was told, I'll sit right over here, and when it's your turn, uh, we'll call you up, and, and you go up onto that platform, and, and then you speak, right? How do I know that's gonna hold me? Like I, I, I look at this, this stage, and I'm like, I don't know if that's gonna hold. Well, come on, right? Objective truth, it's clear, right? There's a big old piano up there, that's... It's holding that, right? There's a drum kit up there. That's got to weigh more than me. It's holding that, right? There was like five people up here was holding all of them, all their stuff, all their gear. And it's a pretty good bet that somebody else has preached from that platform before. It held them up. And I could walk over to it and I could feel it. Like there's carpet there, but underneath the carpet, I could tell it's concrete. Like is that going to hold me up? Objective truth. Yep, that's going to hold me up. Subjective truth. Like, stand on it. That's subjective truth. You should spend time alone with your heavenly Father because he wants to spend time with you, and from that you can find strength and power to live this life. That's the objective truth. But until you stand on it, you don't know it. Until you stand on it, you don't know it. I want to talk about four obstacles that are preventing us from, from standing on it. Now, these are obstacles that, that come from my own life. And so maybe, uh, maybe you can't sympathize or empathize with them. Maybe you can't. But here's, here's, the, here's the first obstacle that I, I find from, from having times of silence and solitude with my Heavenly Father. The first one is this. I'm addicted to distraction. I'm addicted to distraction. Uh, we talked about this a few weeks ago that we, we have these, what's called schemata. We have, we have mental frameworks for the way life works or a reality. And when it comes to truth, uh, we come across something that, that is new and true. Um, we either we have to twist it to make it fit into our schemata or we have to disregard it. Or we have to change our framework. See, so many of us, we have these frameworks that, that are developed by our parents early on as we grow up. We look at their habits and their hangups and the things that they turn to instead of turning to God and, and they get into us and we start emulating those sorts of things and as we grow and as we mature, we start looking to things to, to be the answers or our solutions to, the, to the life's greatest questions. And, and so we develop these habits and, the, and these patterns and most of them are simply just distractions. That, that we could go to God the Father when we need power to confront lies, or we could go to God the Father when, when, when we need discernment for big decisions, or we could go to God the Father when, when we need endurance for what's going on in our life, we could go to God the Father when, when, when we're facing suffering and pain, but we choose to go elsewhere. We choose to go elsewhere. Um, Haley Barton, Ruth Haley Barton wrote a book called Invitation to Silence and Solitude. She writes this, when we do have discretionary time, we indulge in escapist behaviors, such as compulsive eating, drinking, spending, watching television, because we're too tired to choose activities that are truly life-giving. What she's talking about there is we, one of the things is we wait till our tank is empty, 
And then when we're empty, that's when we face the hardship and we have nothing to draw from. But in those moments, what do we go to? Distraction. But in the times when we're not facing opposition, we're not facing difficult or hardship, when we have time, we don't spend that time with God the Father. We spend it doing whatever. Like many of us, we're, we're going through life uh, on empty and we just swing by the gas station to put five bucks in spiritually. Some of you are here this morning. You came in here spiritually empty and, and you got five bucks in your pocket and you're here to, to get this worship service and you're not gonna fill up on, on God the rest of the week until you come back here. You have nothing besides this. See, some of you are group dating God. It's a group date. You're not alone with him. You're comfortable hanging out with God as a group. But nothing more, than, more intimate than that. We're addicted to distraction. The second reason that I have a difficult time spending time in silence and solitude with my Heavenly Father. It requires saying no to other things. That's the thing about discipline. It requires you to say no to some stuff. And my flesh doesn't want to say no. I want to give in. Every inkling, every desire, I want to give it what it wants. We have to say no to, we have to, say no to sleep. It means choosing to get up earlier before the kids are awake, before the house is, a, is bustling, before you, you need to you know, get ready for work and head out, like before the preparation for the, be, the day begins, to get up, lose sleep, and sit there and just say, here I am, Father. It means saying no to screen time, like shutting the TV off, putting the phone down, all the other distractions, it means saying no to that and maybe ending the day in his presence. It means maybe giving up lunch. Say no to your stomach for, for, for half an hour and get alone with God. It means saying no to, uh, to the events on the calendar. It means, you know, canceling an appointment and hopping in the car and, and going to a park and being alone. It means saying no, and we don't like saying hello. No. Next one. Third reason, we're afraid God won't show up. The alarm goes off, I wake up, I go downstairs, and I sit. Nobody else is awake. I say, God, here I am. What if he doesn't show up? What if I don't feel something? What if I don't hear words? What, what if he doesn't show up? Or what if he can't show up? What if there's so much stuff going on up here in my head? What if I, I'm still like reliving past conversations from yesterday or I'm, I'm still dealing with frustrations and anger regarding this thing or that thing or, or, or I got all this anxiety. Like what, what if God, he, he comes and he's knocking but he, he can't break in because there's no space up here for him or here? What if he won't show up? What does that say about my faith? Last one, we're afraid God will show up. He'll show up, but he'll show up as the judge. And he'll sit there and say, well, the bed you're lying in, that's the bed you made. What you're suffering from right now, it's what you deserve. I know your character. I know the choices you make. 
I see you. Condemnation. What if he shows up as the judge? What if he shows up as the therapist? Let's talk about your feelings. Right? Uh, Barton says this, when we're dangerously tired, we don't feel much of anything good or bad. On some level, we suspect that if we stop long enough to experience our emotions, we might be overcome by feelings we'd rather not feel. Sadness over past and present losses, desperation regarding aspects of our life or character that seem unfixable, powerlessness to choose the kind of life we know we're meant to live, unfulfilled desires and longings. We may be afraid that if we entered these unlit places in our souls, we might never come out. We're afraid God will show up and he'll begin to show us what's going on in here. And for some of us, we don't want to go there. We don't want to go there. Now, these are my obstacles. And maybe you could sympathize with, with one or two of them. I don't know. What are yours? If you, if you could say, like, I know I need to be with the Father. I know that. But I'm not with the Father. Then what's the obstacle that's preventing you from it? Identify it. Figure it out. Because your time with the Father is the most important thing about you. Barton says this, and I swear it's the last quote from her. You may not realize it, but your desire for God is the truest and most essential thing about you. It is truer than your sin. Jesus paid for it. It is truer than your woundedness. He paid for that too. It is truer than your net worth that doesn't even matter. It's truer than your marital status or any role or responsibility you hold. Your desire for God and your capacity to connect with God as a human soul is the essence of who you are. See, God has said through Paul to the Ephesian church, I've chosen you in the beloved. I want to be with you. That's what the God of the universe has said. I want to be with you. Do you want to be with me? How we answer that question is the most important thing about us. He's made a way for us to be with him. This truth... I am chosen in the blood. This is the most powerful thing to stand on, if you can stand on it. See, we're given this choice. We can choose, when we confront the lies with the world, the flesh, and the devil, we could choose to look here, inside of us. We could choose, when it comes to the big decisions of life and who we're gonna travel this, this road with, we could choose that based on what we find in here. When it comes to endurance, the, the, the long road of endurance, when it, the, the power to, to, to keep going, we could choose to look here. And when it comes to the pain and suffering, the attitude for it, we could choose to look here. But you and I, you know this. We know this. It is quiet desperation. A life of quiet desperation because we don't have it. We don't have it. He does. To be able to stand in that truth, I am chosen in the beloved to know that your identity has come for what has been done for you. Jesus did it for you. Just like Jesus 
had the approval of the Father before he did anything. You have the approval of the Father because of what Jesus did for you. It's good news. And let me tell you something. It's, it's news that changes things for you. It's news that gives us power. Not, not weakness. It, it gives us strength to be able to run and not, not coast on fumes. I'm gonna pray for us and then I wanna talk to you about the Advent season that's coming up. Heavenly Father, thank you. That's all I got, I thank you. I, I don't know why you chose me. I don't know why you take the righteous life of Jesus and pin it to me. I don't know why you take my sin and pin it to him. I don't know why you want a relationship with me. But you want to be with me. I don't know why, but I know you do. And I need your help to take that from objective truth to subjective truth. I need that truth to be what undergirds me, what, what I stand on, what I live out of. And most days I don't because I'm turning to other things like distractions. Because I'm feeding my flesh and I don't want to say no. And I, I think that you're not going to show up because I think you're not good when I know you are. Or I think you will show up and you'll be a judge when the truth is you've already judged Jesus and I'm forgiven and set free like that, that you want to be with me. God, I can't fathom it. But help me live out of the power of it. In Jesus' name. Well, I want to talk to you briefly about what's coming up. Um, we go into the season of Advent and uh, typically the, the Advent themes are, are hope, peace, joy, and love. And this year, instead of looking at the birth narratives, um, we're gonna look at uh, the theological implications of God incarnate, of Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. And we're gonna look at that through, through the lens of emotional and mental health issues. So uh, three out of the four weeks, we're gonna look at issues of mental and emotional health. Next week, we're gonna look at anxiety, and followed by depression and then trauma. The fourth week will just be Christmas Eve. It'll be a very uh, simple family-oriented service gathering. But we're gonna be looking at these, these three issues of mental health. And some might ask, well, why would we do that at Christmas time? Right, why? Don't we, shouldn't we just talk about baby Jesus? That seems a little more friendly, right? Well, the reality is, is that this time of year, for many people, these issues are brought to the surface and exacerbated and of the times of the year to address these issues, this is appropriate. Because the reality is, God is with us, and there's nothing we, we shouldn't be able to talk about with him, right? Um, what I need is uh, a testimony. Uh, I have uh, two people lined up for testimonies, for the, one for the, the session on depression and one for the session on trauma. Um, but I'm looking for someone who'd be willing to share their testimony regarding anxiety. If you have walked through this, uh, knowing that God has been present with you, he hasn't automatically cured you of it, but you've walked through these, these issues and you'd be willing to share with us what God has done, would you please come find me after the gathering? You could fill out a connection card, giving me your information, addressing it to me. Uh, you could shoot me an email or you could message me on Facebook, but however you do it, please let me know. 
I think the testimonies preach louder than preaching sometimes. So uh, lastly, um, for more resources on silence and solitude, if you would like to help, some, some help in this area, you wanna, you wanna go from this place of, uh, of, of just you know, objective truth to subjective truth, you wanna bring it, incorporate it in your life, you wanna begin to undo some of those patterns and pathways and habits and stuff that you've formed where you look to other things, if you wanna begin to do that, there's two resources for you. And the way you get to them is you scan the QR code that's in front of you on that seat back, It'll take you to a weekly news page. You scroll all the way down to the bottom. There's two resources. One is free. It's a four-week silence and solitude guide that you can do either on your own or with a small group or with your house church. The second thing is a book that I've mentioned several times in the message by Ruth Haley Barton called Invitation to Silence and Solitude. That link will take you to where you could purchase it on Amazon. With that, thank you for being here this morning. Thank you for listening. Let's worship.